Hi, my name is Christine Murray, and welcome to the Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to make cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings as much as the buildings themselves. Key Cities is a national network representing 27 urban centres across the UK. And they've published a report in collaboration with Arts Council England, which calls for a more inclusive approach to stimulating the economy and highlighting the link between low cultural engagement and deprivation. In short, the report highlights the role culture can play in boosting places and supporting communities and asks, how can we get the people in these places more engaged in cultural production and support the grassroots cultural initiatives that are already taking place. Talking to me about the report is Councillor Alan Waters and Sari Mears Slee. Let's tune in. Hi, I'm Sarah Morrisley. I'm executive director of a consultancy called Here for Culture in Place, an outgoing chair of Salford's Culture in Place partnership, um, and a role which I had the absolute pleasure to not only work in Salford in Greater Manchester, but also contribute to the Key Cities uh, Culture in Place in Britain report earlier this year. Thanks so much for being here. And Alan, tell me about you and Key Cities. So thank you, Christine. Uh, I'm Alan Waters, uh, Councillor Alan Waters, leader of, of Norwich City Council, and I'm the portfolio lead for the, the Key Cities group. Um, culture is a very important uh, area of activity in, in Norwich, and I was the, the Key Cities representative on the um, Creative uh, Cities uh, Commission uh, which was set up in 2018. So the report that you've brought out, uh, the Key Cities report, for um, really places uh, culture at the heart of a kind of economic, uh, not only an economic driver of change, but also you know a, a driver of of prosperity for for people, a driver of health and well-being. And I think that's kind of a place that I think would be really nice to start. I mean. I, I know that um, in terms of place, culture has long been associated with, uh, you know, with this idea of drawing attention to a place, the Bilbao effect, brought, drawing in maybe tourism or or visitors and this idea that that could kickstart uh, regeneration. But placing culture at the heart of a kind of well-being in places of socioeconomic um uh, hardship sounds like something kind of new to me, but is it new and and is it um, is it you know really for local people? Is this different what you're describing to you know landing an art gallery in Margate or or in Wakefield or something like that? Sarah, do you want to start? Absolutely. I think maybe the frame and the focus feels more new. It feels like conversations around health and well-being, creativity and culture, and a personal engagement. You know, we've had loads of case studies and, and research that have shown us this is good for you. This, this can be really good for people and populations, but it feels like the conversations around um, culture, creativity, and, and health and well-being are really kind of coming of age now with new organizations like uh, the National Center for Creative Health. Um, Greater Manchester last November launched becoming um, the first um, creative health city region with a strategy of how to go about that. So whilst it's not new, I think sometimes um, the pandemic shifted our eyes to what really connects us, what really separates us and what 
feels more worthwhile than maybe it did five years ago. So I think with that, if you will, renewed perspective, um, we're seeing and giving more attention to that from a personal perspective, a place perspective, but also a policy perspective. Alan, you talk about in your foreword, leveraging the power of culture for our places and for the productivity and well-being of the whole country. But you also warn that it can be associated with gentrification and that it needs to have kind of a local, uh, I don't know, a local flavor, a local engine to it. Do you want to talk a little bit about about that? Yes, I think um, culture has kind of come out of the elitist box, if you if you like. Um, and it's been recognised as, as something of, of, of wider benefit to, to society in a number of different areas. Um, I, I suppose COVID um, and the impact of COVID was one of the one of the sort of key factors in people appreciating, in terms of their own well-being, how cultural activities you know, delivered online. Remember, we we, we all were watching. You know, symphony orchestras all in their all in their bedrooms performing, um, you know, concerts for people, and how important that was to, to people's sense of well-being and connectedness and so on. And I think, I think that was then a catalyst for recognizing that that culture had more of a, a, a wider remit, and government got interested at that point, and that sort of intersects with um, the, the earlier question you were asking, Christine, which was about cultural compact. I was kind of in the room when we, the, the, the commission, which was in Newcastle at that time, recognised that there was a need of, of using that convening power that councils had, that cities had, to bring people together. Everybody's had a lot of partnership experience, but this, I thought, was the keystone of how we could move this agenda forward. And that would result in a kind of critical mass of activity in each city. It would make a more powerful voice to government about making the case for, for, for cultural investment in a, in a range of different areas from well-being to, to regeneration, to job creation. And, and, and that's really been a bit of a revolution, I think. So a lot of this thinking is crystallized. So we're, we're really very much in the space now where culture is going to be a key driver for government policy, for devolution. What we need, of course, is we need a sustainable funding model to get the benefits from that. So what is a cultural compact? Just to describe that to somebody who's never heard that term, um, it kind of sounds like it's a partnership, but what does it actually mean? So, so basically, it's um, a way of bringing together all cultural institutions, all cultural activity, and this can be from you know the large cultural anchor institutions to independent creatives, and bringing them together under, as it were, one big umbrella or in a big tent, and having a sense of, of what of, of what's going on, uh, what sort of activity is 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 happening. And being able to um, build greater capacity through collective action and being an advocate to government. But this is going to be cross-sectoral. So it's looking to get private investment, it's local authority investment, it's government investment, it's you know, council investment, and generating that kind of funding level of activity that can really drive this 
agenda forward. So each place will have a different approach. And so there are cultural compacts and it is an idea that caught on. Um, one of the big, um, big successes of that, that um, commission's work. And in the truly creative way, different places are taking different uh, approaches. And there's a lot of interesting work being done collectively between cities who have got cultural compacts to, to learn from each other, to um, join up, to act as an advocacy space as well. So it's a work in progress, but it's making very good progress, I think. And if I can come in following Alan's um, overview, which was really helpful, uh, it's quite funny. When I started working um, with Sulfur's Culture in Place Partnership in June 2019, in my second day of work, somebody handed me the Creative Cities Inquiry Report, and I opened it up and went, oh, cultural compact. Oh, I think that's what we are. So well, Salford has one of the oldest ones. And I would love to say because of sort of quick fire response, but the truth was there had been a journey ahead of that, um, which I won't go deeply into. But if you will, looking to, to draw together a cultural strategy and actually finding that partnership work was the right thing for that place and in that time. And, um, you know, the governance model to underpin a strategy was the first idea, but it led to this partnership forming in January 2019. And just, you know, giving a bit of examples to the the beautiful out overview that Alan gave. So Salford's Culture in Place Partnership is led by four anchor institutions that signed an MOU, you know, in 2017, and then many things followed. But those anchor institutions are Arts Council England, Salford City Council, the University of Salford, and the Lowry as the landmark cultural institution in the city. But it, and it's, well, it's evolved. It also in, in, uh, in, uh, includes uh, the BBC and the RHS, which both have sites, both at Media City and the new RHS Gardens at Bridgewater. Um, Artist-led organizations, including Artist Studios, Walk the Plank and Islington Mill. Um, Salford CVS, which leads on the third sector um, organizations in the city, um, Salford Community Leisure, so the Leisure and, you know, Creative Trust within the city, uh, and also, you know, not at, at, at the beginning, but in 2019, um, Peel Media, who is a major landowner that owns Media City, and hand on heart, I can honestly say it is the multiple perspectives, if you will, the facets to the jewel, everybody's coming in with this, with a, a commitment to place, really clear priorities that they have, and an overall belief in terms of what could make the city a better place to live, work, invest, play, you know, experiment, create, et cetera. With that in mind, having a compact means you've agreed that you want common ground. And that's the first step in finding where do we really stand together? Sharing is hard. So having some structure and support, if you will, supporting one another, how do we build on this common ground? Um, it, it's a big step. And it certainly made a, a major difference in, in Salford within Greater Manchester. So some of these, um, you know, cities will have their year of culture and that will kind of kickstart this, um, you know, kind of fruition or maybe these partnerships even will, you know, will be kind of forced into play by an event or an anniversary or some kind of designation. Does the cultural compact allow that kind of focus to take place outside of it? Or do you think that these, you know, one-off um, festivals of, of creativity are you know, are essential to really gelling or focusing um, the attention of these institutions. Sari, go ahead. Sure. I, I, I can say they certainly, um, they provide a goal. I don't think they're essential. I think they can um, draw focus and become the common ground for a while. There's um, 
and in terms of you know the the culture in place report highlights some of the great work you know done in in Hull and Coventry and and other places um, which I won't uh, go into in terms of what this investment can do and some really good frank discussion from an evaluation perspective about what positive impact was made where what what did it reveal that needs further focus but I think a, a, a kind of a year long or a festival celebration of place it really helps you know focus the minds help um, investors whether they're you know, public funding investors, you know, sponsors, et cetera, kind of believe in what they can do together. Um, I think, yeah, I think sometimes a lot of energy can go into building something if it's in a competitive model. If that does, if the investment doesn't come through, that can still be helpful. Having done that groundwork can be helpful, but without resource, and I don't necessarily mean cash. It can be cash, money, people, space, infrastructure, without the resource to take that vision forward, it can sometimes take a little while to people kind of slope back and then recover and find the new way to be if it's just about one thing. Alan, do you want to come in around the kind of culture focus um, of those year, year-long year celebrations of culture and cultural cities? Uh, yes, definitely, because um, these cities as a group um, have had signal success in, in in being shortlisted or being successful becoming um, UK city city of culture and, and and what I think is interesting is 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 how that is often used in a in a very forward looking way so you know <laughs> often often we reflect on you know wanting have a wanting to have a better past. So, you know, one could argue that, you know, some of the conversations around Brexit were very much about that. And I think what cities have done, like Hull, like Coventry, state two recent examples, have said we have a future and the world has changed and we need to grasp the opportunities of, 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 of what we can do collectively together and we can use this as an opportunity, a platform to, to move forward. As a, as a place, as a city, and, and get people feeling that they're part of, 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 of that exercise, that they're empowered by this. And I think that's a really very important thing uh, to come out of this. So it's about redefinitions. It's about the fact that cities change, and they change all the time, and it's, it's never been any different. There's never been a, a sepia golden age of hundreds of years where nothing has changed and everything is the same. But the key point is, you know, this is about long-term investment. So, you know, big uplift for Hull, uplift for Coventry. Um, you need five and ten years funding, not one year, and you're kind of, you, you begin to lose ground. So there's a spurt of activity, but it's not the full potential. And so that comes to the heart of, well, actually, if we all think that cultural investment is really important, well, we need to walk the talk and we need to make that happen. And that's not just central government. It's making sure that we bring all those partners together to do that investment at the local level. And I think that's that's a dimension of hyperlocality where we take responsibility ourselves through cultural compacts is one example to be able to, to mobilise those resources, then go to government and say, you know, be a partner with us. Then go to the private sector and say, be a partner with us. And you build that kind of critical mass and sustained strength going forward. So interesting to look at that UK City of Culture as almost a, you know, a really useful 
branding exercise, a way to shine a light on what's in a given place, a way to kind of attract a fresh eye. And also maybe pride in place comes into that, you know, and kind of telling the residents that you, you know, you, you see them and that this is, you know, they're, they're in an exciting place. They're in a rich um, and, and storied place and to kind of write future stories for it as well. Um, but then this other uh, key point you've made about long-term investment. And I know the, um, the paper itself talks about hyperlocal devolution to support uh, that, um, uh, that, that long-term vision. Um, do you want to talk a little bit, Alan, about this long-standing uh, debate around uh, devolution and where that's at right now? And, you know, you know, we talked about um, five, 10 years. I mean, looking at uh, changes that, you know, you would like to see or the key cities would like to see. Why does that um, continued discussion Discussion of hyperlocal devolution uh, come up, and where does that come from, and where are we at in that debate? So there's there's, there's nobody who would argue against devolution. Central government in favour, local governments in favour. It's, it's 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 the character of that of, of, of that um, model, and what we what we have at the moment is a, a competitive model uh, in terms of the levelling up agenda. And there are some successful places, and but there are places who who, who are not on the on the page. And in terms of in terms of spending power that different localities have, there's a big difference. There's a big difference. There is a need for an equalisation mechanism, which will you know look across the piece because actually, if culture is important, it's not just important in some places; it's important everywhere. And you know you need to have a mechanism by which you recognise that. So you know poorer areas do get additional resources to be able to capitalise on the possibilities of their their areas alongside other places which have you know are, are well resourced and and can move that agenda forward. So that's a that, that's a that, that's a gets into the technicalities of, of local government finance. But there was an equalisation mechanism called the revenue support grant, and basically. Areas with low council tax bases got top-ups and areas with good council tax bases got uh, less money, but there was a, 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 a kind of more, more equality across the, that landscape. That is an argument which is ongoing. So um, really to capitalise on, on all of this, the proper devolution, you know, it has to be, it has to be resourced. It has to be something which is a national programme of investment, not just a competitive and ultimately sort of scattergun process of some successes and and and, and places which are, are less less successful, because otherwise we're, we're not going to capitalise on that. And and government, I think, understands this because it hasn't made that move yet on the finance side of things, but it recognises that if you're doing some social prescription for people and they're going to dance classes. Or they're, you know, um, going down to the National Centre for Writing, where I'm the chair in Norwich, and they're they're writing about their lives, and they discover they they can write, and that's a, and I've seen that happen, and it's such an empowering thing. All of those things, then, you know, if you if you do the order, if you do the bottom line, you know, that proper sustained investment nationally is 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 going to is going to improve things immensely, but it's also going to be a, a very good use of, of spending. So I think I think we're halfway up the hill. 
I think there's that recognition, but um, the devolution models that we have are still very kind of restricted and resource limited. So there, there's there's more of a debate to be had about that and more arguments to be made. But I think things like cultural compacts, partners across all sectors coming forward and saying this is this is a really good thing. Government, come on, invest, work with us. Come on, Treasury. If we're getting this investment and there's a tax uplift, how about giving a slice to us? Uh, you know, to continue the good work down at the local level. So that that's that has to be a sustained line of argument, I think, going forward. If I can, I'd love to just make another point to kind of underline that around competitive models and inequality ac across regions, across the country. You know, you can slice that inequality picture in lots of different ways and still find quite a bit of truth. Um, as an ex a concrete example, so, you know, at the, at the beginning of the pandemic, the a central government created the um, cultural recovery fund, which very welcomed and made a huge difference to cultural organizations across the country. Um, in 2021 and 2022, um, the Center for Cultural Value did a huge COVID on culture research um, project that dug into the impact and, I mean, a sort of staggering breadth and depth. But one thing they found specifically around that cultural recovery fund, so CRF funding, is that um, the, the, the biggest winner, the, where the most money went was Manchester, not Greater Manchester, then followed by Greater London, which was then followed by the core cities, which is a similar network, but of the biggest cities across, I'm going to say England and others, because I don't know as much about it. After the core cities, then the key cities, then towns, and then I'm going to say the last group is other. So there was a decreasing, basically, if, organ if places had a long-term investment in culture in their locale, then they were more likely to get much more funding than places that hadn't invested or hadn't been able to invest. And just acknowledging, you know, over a decade of austerity, it's hard to invest in stuff, just broadly. It's really hard when there's short, short of cash, it's hard to invest in things, which means long-term, you know, waiting for longer-term results. But with that in mind, because the it means when there's a competitive model, those locales that have already put more money into it are likely to get more money. And with that reality, it, then you look at the competitive model and how, it, in many cases, it could uh, deepen inequality between regions, places, et cetera, rather than. Um, so it's just another example to kind of underline that. Which I think just adding adding to that, that explains why you know the late, the latest funding round by the arts council is pushing uh, money had already been taken out of decisions about money coming out of london had been made um three or four years ago for a sort of a, a, a better distribution but in this round and I, I i sit on one of the arts council boards for the southeast um it, you know it was about getting moving investment into places which were had a paucity of cultural activity to build that up, and that was and that was the trade-off. And it was controversial in some respects. Um, but you know, the Arts Council got constrained funding like everybody else. But there's a lot of thinking went into you know, how, do, how how do we spread that sort of cultural engagement and and, and make sure that we're leveling up in that in the in the broadest meaning of that of that term. It was controversial. And I guess that's that's always that question where, you know, as long as we're trading off one place against another place, there's a lot of pain in that. I think, um, does this, but does this idea of the cultural 
compact help places to, I guess, compete for funding or attention through that partnership? And, uh, you know, it is, is that one of the um, ideas that if you have this, if you're going to be applying for Arts Council funding or, or other mechanisms, that through creating these uh, cross-sector partnerships, I don't know, you look bigger. You're like the small fish gathering together to look like a bigger fish. I think so. I think so in a couple different ways. Number one, I mean, as Alan intimated earlier, or spoke of earlier, every compact that is formed, it's not a cookie cutter model. This, this, the beginning is similar, but then the, where the trajectory for each one is different and partially. So in the different ways that I, I'm thinking of one is you've got to know your own story and get your act together first before you start asking for funding. And whether that's, you know, looking, the business looking for its first investment, looking for a mortgage, you know, you have to, you have to know where you are, what you want and have your own house in order first. And in many ways, being able to speak with your partners, your neighbors, um, you know, with the Preston model, you know, know your own suppliers, collaborators. How can you strengthen the way you work in the city with the resource you already have? Because even when there's not a lot of cash floating about, if resource includes people's time, expertise, spaces, infrastructures, all those things, then actually every cultural compact forms with resource in play. Now, what you can share as an organization, as a cultural compact member, that's variable. And that can be variable year to year. So, which is one reason partnership working is worthwhile, but not easy. So it starts to have your own house in order and go, well, what matters to us? Okay, we're all in the same place. Good. <laughs> we're all here at the same table. Fantastic. What matters? What are we going to prioritize? What's What aspirations do we really want to chase alongside what stubborn needs in our place are not being um, met, even if that's uncomfortable to say from from a delivery or service perspective. So starting with that, and then I think the second, if I draw on Salford's experience, when, I mean, fairly new, I think when the, the partnership was only a year old, we had worked together for about nine months to form, if you will, a first, a first project, which was Rediscovering Salford. We literally got the money the same day Boris Johnson got our televisions and said, you know, the coronavirus is here and everybody is going to be home from Friday. So, which was both meant that the project plan went out the window, but at the same time, we had some resource and had the focus of what we were trying to achieve. Um, so it allowed, so we did a two-year project with, you know, a hundred, if you will, a national lottery project grant under a hundred grand over two years to really not only look at impact and try to improve in two different areas, but also test the way we were going to work as verb <laughs> in partnership. And that was hugely worthwhile. And it means that when but prior to developing larger bids, um, some of which were successful, some of which haven't been, that's pretty much how it goes. <laughs> you get some, you lose some, you keep trying, but with better clarity and being able to test how you actually work together before you start asking for investment um, is crucial. It's helpful. And it means you start to understand what you really need to have that next massive leap forward, which can be a major festival event. It can also say, actually, what we need to focus on this city is uh, the environment and sustainability or children and young people up to the age of 25, you know, whatever that is, what do we really want to dig into? What's the common ground worth building on? Uh, when it's quite hard to to establish it to begin with. So it can be helpful in a couple different ways, which I think can lead to a real investment readiness when approaching, I'm going to say, you know, central government funding or investment from the private sector beyond um, 
corporate social responsibility or, a, you know, a sponsorship, a nice to have, a well done, um, but to actually be a partner at that table where they can see the benefits to themselves as well as the benefits to the place they're situated in. Partnership working is is the kind of first step that you need to take for government to take notice of you. So the, 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 the town's deal. So we've got a, 20, a Norwich 2040 partnership. And, and that's about a vision for the city in 2040. And it's, uh, it's a, a successful, very broad ranging partnership. And we um, effectively, we were able to convene a group of people to sit around the table with the Towns Deal bid. We were probably the most successful Towns Deal bid in the first wave, got 25 million pounds. Part of that was funding for the halls. Now the halls were originally um, a monastery, handed over by Henry VIII to the city of Norwich. Um, very impressive venue historically, but needs work doing on it. And we used that as one of the projects, uh, a kind of tangible thing that the cultural compact partners could come around the table to think about how do we use this facility to, to, to build on the principles of a cultural compact and, and you know, multi-use and so on. And so we've got significant investment in that. And then there was another skit, there was another investment, which was a Digitech factory um, uh, at, the, at the, the College of Higher Education, which of course sort of blends into some of that economic argument about creativity in the digital sector. And you know, some of this discussion about the, you know, the idea of a hundred million pound investment in, in, in you know, identified micro clusters across across the um, across England um, and or the UK as, as part of that. So you begin to see those connections being made up. When we got the, the successful bid through, the, the press release from the Department of, of Leveling Up was, you know, we're giving this to the 2040 because you've got a 2040 partnership and you've got a clear vision about what you want to do and we can see where all of this fits in. So it's just echoing um, uh, Sally's comments um, earlier on. I wanted to um, mention one thing that the Key Cities report digged into was the patient building of ecosystems and community capacity. And this was seen as, um, I think, Alan, you wrote that as, as an antidote to the idea of um, arts-led gentrification, um, this idea that uh, you know, this kind of arts investment was not always about Big Bang or bringing in some kind of um, building or attraction, uh, but really about this kind of granular um, investment. And I, I guess that points a bit, um, Sarah, you talked about, uh, you know, this uh, cultural compact being a, uh, an opportunity to point out where things are going wrong or that you know lacks in in the community or I guess gaps that need to be filled in order to to allow culture to thrive but i wonder if you could talk about that kind of grassroots um approach to culture because i think it's one in place that is perhaps now increasingly being talked about but you know not not part of the the gentrification dialogue you know it really um although uh, you know, it has been, it ha people have been known to put in some artist studios as a meanwhile use that then get ripped out later. <laughs> but this idea of a patient building, I thought was really well put. You know, why does it take patience 
what where is the gap in community capacity? How is that filled? And you know, what are these ecosystems? I think a great question, a really beautiful phrase, <laughs> patient and ecosystem and coming together. I think a couple of things. I mean, number one, um, when we talk about place, you know, at least for me, um, the approach that I take, I think place is the intersection between people and their locale when you think of uh, the continuum between past, present and future. So it's different than, um, you know, site. It's different than geography. Place infers its relationship to people. Um, so with that in mind, you know, when you, and then the word ecosystem, if we think about ecosystem, it's, it's a buzzword. And to be honest, I'm so glad to be seeing it because it carries a really healthy um, image in, with it. But you think of sort of a forest ecosystem. If you have an area, you know, you have the big mature trees, you have the saplings, you have the sort of layered forest garden approach, and then you have the mulch on the ground, even if we're just thinking plants. Probably no for thinking about a forest. If you have lots and lots of big trees and it's not managed, that will shade out everything else underneath. And I think sometimes, I mean, please don't get me wrong, having landmark cultural institutions can be major game changers for a city. And it, it, that, if you will, has been the kind of hallmark of culture-led regeneration for the late 20th and early 21st centuries. But I also think it's worth taking note of some changes over the last couple of years with the two major you know, lottery funders. Arts Council England in their 10-year plan that we're you know, three years into now, they stopped doing capital funding. So they had one round of capital funding right off the bat in 2020 or 21. It got a little blurry there during the pandemic time-wise. And then just in the last couple of months, the National Lottery Heritage Fund have shifted their foci, their investment foci. And there was, um, I think it was their chair, an article in the art newspaper that talked about actually they're moving away from the Bilbao effect in terms of build one thing and they will come. Actually, what we need to look at as ecosystems where you might have more investment, very similar to what Alan, well, beautifully uh, demonstrated by the the town's project that that, uh, Alan was speaking about. But you need things to be able to not only be saved, but live, have a life beyond. So it might need more money to go into a place, but if it can then generate something that is self-sustaining, so income from one thing can, you know, cross-subsidize something else that it can give time for a business model to develop to be first self-sufficient and then profit generating so that it doesn't need further funding, that actually um, we need the big trees. They're often what, you know, it's, it's, there's a reason there's a Royal Oak pub and not a Royal small sapling pub. You know, there's a reason why we should treasure the, the big trees, but also we need air and light and nutrients for s- saplings. Um, and we need the mulch. My colleague, Martin Stockley, um, who's very much a built environment colleague and leader. He says, you know, all the life's in the mulch. If you lose the mulch, you, you'll lose the forest eventually. So I think that ecosystem, it's not just about involving the community or involving, you know, local people. It's realizing that places are about people already, places, their people, their environment and how these things change together. And investment in place, if we look at it with an ecosystem approach, then, you know, a microcluster, an ecosystem, we're actually, you know, a cultural compact, we're actually talking about very similar things with different lenses. The way groups of groups that of difference different size, scale, focus, et cetera, can work together towards that future looking. Um, so absolutely about building capacity and community. I think there are a lot of oh stories we tell ourselves and each other and sometimes myths about like what an artist is. You know, they might be crazy. They might be, they're definitely weird. They could be a genius. They could be dangerous, but they're probably middle class. Like they're all these re- having worked, you know, in this well, working in Salford. Often it takes a little bit of just like coming together and telling each other personal stories to go, oh, 
oh, you're a counselor and you believe this, not that. Oh, oh, you're an artist and you, you know, oh, you do this, not that. But actually coming together as people and realizing what you can do um, in a place, but with honest stories rather than just the stories we like to hear and tell, that can be a really helpful starting place. And by thinking of it as a genuine ecosystem, the health of the ecosystem depends on health at all levels. So it is about community building. It is about capacity in the grassroots sector. But I think it's about that interrelationship and knowing if if everybody seeks to thrive and support each other to thrive, the whole place and its people will thrive as well. Beautifully put. I love the forest analogy and the mulch, especially. But Alan, do you want to add to that? And I think one thing that, you know, that kind of idea of needing to build capacity in the community, is that linked to, you know, we are in very stretched uh, times where this cost of living, the, you know, the amount of, of um oxygen that COVID took out of people's, uh, um, you know, airspace. And, and this idea, you know, how do we kind of allow communities to have capacity to be artists or to have space to contribute culturally? Yes, that's a, that's a really, really good question. And it's been something I've been uh, engaged with as, as, as leader of the council um, for a while, because culture falls within my my portfolio. So, um, I mean, knowledge is a series of urban villages. Uh, if I take my own ward, there are five distinctive communities. And, and so reaching down into that and understanding those communities is a really important part of um, you know, how, you, how people access uh, culture, cultural activities. And in one particular estate, which is the Mile Cross estate, which is 100 years old, and was remarkable for the fact that it was the first garden estate built. I mean, people were just blown away by it. You know, wonderful houses, lots of grass, really perfectly designed. And um, in fact, my first 18 months as a baby was with my grandmother living on the Mile Cross estate. So I have a, a, a connection with it. But there is a there is a, a very active group working in Mile Cross. Um, running a, a, a kind of a, a big, big festival, a big event, celebrating the history of Mile Cross. They've taken a, 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 an empty shop unit that the council has made available to talk about the history, the place, people's memories, their associations. And when I went to visit it, you know, people had done tapestry work, people were doing oral history work, going on local radio, dressing up in 1940s clothing, remembering things and and that really is a very rich engagement the thing is um all of our institutions whether whether they're the, the mighty oaks or the or the saplings or the mulch all of us need to be working to think about how do we make sure everybody gets a chance how do we make sure everybody gets um a role to play so you know uh we have a we have a theater entry so reaching those groups, because we're a very welcoming city, we have Afghan and Syrian and Congolese um, uh, asylum seekers, refugees coming in into Norwich um, and making sure that they're enjoying that kind of cultural, that cultural exposure and opportunity as well. And I think there's a very strong link between the health of the local democracy and the number of free venture run. You know, you know, people have got, have got a transactional relationship with their council through paying their council tax and, you know, 
in collections and, 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 and all of that. But we run a lot of free events. And there is a correlation between economic activity as measured or political activity as measured by a number of people going out to vote and the number of free events you run. But it comes down, doesn't it, to the issues of inequality. And I, I've written a, an introduction to our, our cultural action plan, and I've drawn from the work of um, Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett. They wrote a book called The Inner Level in 2018, and they talk about how more equal societies reduce stress and improve everybody's well-being. And in terms of arts, if it's if it's an unequal society, then it's identified, culture is identified as an elite activity, which is a point that you know you've been making, Christine. In a society where there's more equality, there's more access to cultural activity and cultural engagement, cultural enrichment. Out of that, you get you know an increased participation, and you get you know as it were creativity spreading through the roots of the local communities. And, and, and so that's, that's one of our kind of guides as to, as to make sure we do that. So our funding, and we're a big funder of culture in the city, is connected in the same way that the Arts Council is, is demonstrate to us that everybody's benefiting, that everybody's got an opportunity to, to engage or experience this. Because I was thinking about Maslow's, you know, um, hierarchy of need. And, and Maslow never did a hierarchy. He didn't do, well, you get fed, you get watered, you get a roof over your head. And then you think about culture. Actually, what he said was actually all of these different elements, you know, the things that we need for the essentials of life. And one of those is aesthetic pleasure and experience. And if we package it in that way, rather than, well, we'll get around to the culture later when people have, you know, got a better job or, or whatever, um, then, then actually, that's not the reality of it. You know, people to be healthy, happy, and all the rest of it need that exposure from the very beginning. And just to add in a sort of a human level, you know, so I, 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 I grew up as a, a child of, of classical musicians. So grew up in a, you know, artsy household where, you know, <laughs> it was just what you did. But um, as much, I, I love listening to music. I tell you, for certain, making music is more fun. I mean, I love eating cake, but being able to make a cake and eat it and watch other people's pleasure is even better. There's something about being creative. You know, it's we say engagement or participation. We say DIY. There are all sorts of terms, but actually doing it yourself is it, it not only is wonderful. It's about building agency. It also connects in, as we were talking about earlier, with Five ways of well-being, learn, give, connect, take notice. I mean, all of these things are implicit in, in doing something creative. But then beyond that, you know, it's your, it then when you tell your story, it changes your ability to listen to somebody else's. So sometimes creative engagement, the doing as well as the seeing or, or listening is about um you know, offering something of your own, but as soon as you're in that arena, then all of a sudden, the the you're not a passive spectator. You're you're already in. You're already in the group. So I think there's something about engagement, um, the doing it yourself, which um, you're not setting it. The artist or the the thing that you're watching, it's not set apart from you. You can relate to it in a different way. And like I said, you know. My last, you know, sort of creative career was in dance. I love watching people dance, but man, being able to do it yourself and enjoy it, uh, it's it's even better. So there's something I would argue is richer in the doing. And the more people you can get to be able to experience that free, um, 
it, it's really helpful. I guess as a final point, also looking at the trends. So there's an or, or, wonderful charity called the Audience Agency, which has done, I think over the last three years, nine different rounds of a sort of something called the Cultural Participation Monitor. Big, huge survey, population-based survey to look at, you know, what are attitudes on cultural participation? And through the pandemic, you know, they took different uh, slices. But some of the takeaways that remain true, number one, the traditional, I'm going to say arts audiences, shifted. Um, I'm going to say uh, some of them are still less likely to come back, feeling less safe, less um, committed. Tickets are often bought less and later in terms of big venues. And that's an economical um, reality that, that venue-based organizations are, you know, are, are dealing with. But also people's sense of what's important. There is much more of a commitment to what's local, saving your local shop rather than your local chain. Um, and that's translating into people are continue to be interested, highest demand for outdoor, free, public events. And I think that has something to do with the pride of place you were speaking to earlier, as well as a kind of sense of this is good for us, this is good for our kids, this is good for our community. We want to be part of this rather than just supporting it. I want to bring in a a final point, um, which was in the recommendations, quite high up. I mean, kind of the fourth uh, key point uh, made in the article, which is around public libraries being allowed to evolve their offer um, and serve local need and providing free public libraries as an essential service supporting local communities. Some years ago, there there was a lot of coverage around library closure. Um, I think it continues to be um, an issue for, for many uh, smaller towns and cities that they've they've already lost their library or in danger of losing, losing their library. But Alan, do you want to speak to that point um, being made so strongly in this uh, paper and that um, that evolving offer um, and and why this should be an essential service. So Norwich um, had the misfortune of um, its library burning down in, in 1994. And uh, it was a county council function, but the city and the, and, the, and the county council got together and we put in a bid for a, what was then a, a landmark project, which was £30 million. The, the outcome was, was to build a forum. And the forum library uh, has for the last 12 years been the most visited library in the country. And it was designed, um, particularly at that time, so this is going back in like, 30 years, um, to harness, uh, you know, to, to give people access, laptops and, and, and being able to engage with, with this emerging technology. And, and that's remained a very popular feature of that. And libraries have changed. Libraries are more dynamic places. They're putting on some really interesting uh, exhibitions, you know, Black Lives Matter, and looking at through the sort of the, the the prism of you know Norfolk and and Norwich and those local histories, and you know it's a it's a place of of, of activity and engagement and picking up those points about agency, um, which you mentioned earlier on. Um, libraries you know, had had you know thirty percent cuts in funding. Libraries have been closing in in, in across the country. What we know through COVID is how important libraries were as a place of uh, of, of, of comfort, of of, of of refuge almost, and that network is is is, is highly is, is is highly valued. 
And, and clearly, you know, actually, if we're equipping ourselves for the future, our, our, our libraries are, are, are really absolutely essential to, you know, a knowledge economy, but, you know, part of a, a cultural enrichment as well. And those arguments need to continue to be made because, you know, the days of education happening in the classroom, and I speak as, a, as, a, as an ex-teacher, um, you know, that is a space, but that space is much, much broader and much, uh, and, and in a complement, in a complementary way, um, very rich in terms of adding to that, that, that broader education experience. So these are, these are cultural anchor institutions of the first order. And, uh, that case must continue to be uh, argued for very strongly. Great opportunities, it seems to me. I think one thing that struck me about the library as well was, you know, it being increasingly used, maybe it's always been used in this way, but as we, you know, highlight people being insufficiently housed, it's a warming center, it's a cooling center, you know, it's a, it's a workplace for many people or a study room if you've, you haven't got space in your house to, to concentrate as a teenager, you know, you see, it's a, it's a free Wi-Fi center, it's, you know, it's got all of these um, other additional free services it could provide as that, as that neighborhood hub. But, but Sarah, do you want to come in around the role of the library evolving? You know, how do they need to, to, to change and how, you know, and how, how do we see them? Uh, they are closely associated with books. Uh, but again, you know, has a, has the public consciousness or the creative consciousness around the library changed enough? Or is that something that needs that needs firing up? That's a really great question. I, I mean, I think people tend to value their local, I'm going to use the word stuff or thing again, but if it's there, the thing that is at arm's length with them, it, it really matters. Whether they use it or not is a whole different uh, and <laughs> question, maybe at the center of yours. I think, you know, getting to reality, funding for libraries, you know, is, I think, I think I, I work with public sector colleagues rather than in the public sector, but I understand it is, you know, statutory requirement, but what that means in reality still often relies on limited hours, volunteers, you know, uh, Wow. Yeah. And again, I don't want to speak out of turn, but, you know, working with colleagues in Salford who who ran the libraries, the systems to make sure they could stay open um, was <laughs> intricate, ever changing and increasingly difficult. At the same time, those leading with libraries in Salford were absolutely forward work, looking, working with the people in their community already to go, OK, how do we deepen in this way? How do we expand in this way? How do we work with that group? You know, we have a huge demand for these sort of books. Um but I think your points about warm Wi-Fi, a workspace, a study space, when they are needed, you know, especially in education, where there's an understandable reliance on the Internet for information, and there's a lot of information on the Internet. There's also a lot of noise and the ability to curate in the learning or business development process, but especially for younger, vulnerable people to understand what's knowledge to draw on or consider and what is potentially not, um, it, you need people, you need some guidance, or at least you benefit from people and guidance. So having professionals uh, who are already on your side and glad that you're in that space is really crucial. But I will say, you know, if, if resource is ever diminishing and need is ever expanding, uh, you can try to be reactive and agile with what you have, but your ability to move as somebody who's a leader of libraries, somebody leading an account, you know, um, there's going to need a different 
line of resource. If you know, it's, it costs a lot of money, as we know, to stay a warm space. But there's not extra money to keep those libraries on and the heating on. So there's there is a there is a reality underneath this. I think that um, it's easy to get tired. But m- at least the people that I've met, leading libraries at a, in local authorities, are inspirational. Um, but that sort of increasing need, decreasing resource as a continuum, that 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 reality is hard to look at if it continues. How resourceful can libraries be? They'll continue to do their best they can, I have no doubt. But how they can further serve people in different ways, you know, even if we just think about the word seed funding in a private sector context, you need a bit of resource to try to start a change, do a pilot, get things started, see if a change is worthwhile. And that's I think, well, I, I imagine, again, it's not my you know central thing, but I would imagine that's increasingly difficult to do in that sort of climate. I mean, I, w- I would just add there's a, there's a democracy argument there because having skilled librarians and practitioners to guide people to where um, there's reliable evidence and reliable truths is, a, is an important counterweight and to you know, the, the, the kind of self-referential social media bubbles which basically say you have a truth i have the truth uh, we are equivalents and, and that's not the case and you know with the decline of of printed media local newspapers reliable sources of information that people would normally want to reference libraries are really going to be kind of central to that and the skills that we all need all of us because we can be kind of caught up in a a sort of sweeping range of arguments about something and you know wander around in that kind of wood um we all need that guidance uh, as as well so we have you know same balanced engaged democratic conversations rather than populist partisan fake news type conversation which kind of enrage people so that you know libraries are, are and, and, the, and, the, and the people who work in them are, are kind of key to that one more tiny point, just again on the people level, you know, Salford is a densely populated urban environment for the most part. But uh, early 21, a colleague passed on a letter of somebody whose father had passed away recently. And uh, this woman wrote a letter to the libraries to say in the last 10 years of my, um, of my dad's life, um, the main person that he spoke with every week was the, the mobile librarian who would come and, and you know, have, have 10 minutes with him. But that. Yeah, and again, in a densely populated urban area, we still deal, of course, we still deal with loneliness, with isolation and something, you know, will libraries change the world? Oh, I don't know. I guess you could argue it. But could can they change somebody's world? Yes, absolutely. They do. Uh, and figuring out ways to, again, resource, realistically resource libraries to make the impact to sustain the impact they already make, but to consider and develop the impacts they can make with people in their places for the short and long term. Amazing. Well, I do see them as something that can bring people together and as a possible unifying. Uh, you know, you talk about key cities of being a, uh, you know, kind of a way of coming together, these cultural compacts of way of coming together in the library as a place in the heart of our cities where anyone can can go for free. Um, and like you say, you know, get away from the bamboozling, uh, you know, contemporary uh, life that we're leading. 
that just leaves me to thank you both for talking to me today about this report and about your experiences. It's been a hugely wide ranging and interesting conversation. I love um, digging into these um, these cultural, uh, you know, uh, this cultural forest that you've taken me on a walk in. So thank you. Thank you both very much. Thank you, Christine. It's been an absolute pleasure. Very, very good to, to, to discuss and chat with you both. It's been really enjoyable. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast and you like what we do, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com slash the developer UK. Thanks a lot.